I am glad to be with you this morning, and uh, glad to be in God's Word with you. We are in 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, we are looking at verses 12 through 19. We've been looking at verses 12 through 19. We will continue. This is part three. We will have a part four. We've had two other parts here. And uh, if you don't have a, a Bible, there's a blue, probably a blue Bible located underneath the seat around you. You can turn, grab it, turn in that Bible to page 1016. That'll bring you right to our text. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. We have communion today as well. Looking forward to that, celebrating that together, remembering our Lord and Savior and His death and resurrection on our behalf, that we might have life, that we might be forgiven, that we might be made right with God. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump in, read the text, do a little review, and uh, what, what's happening is, is as I'm going through the text and, and, and then dealing with the next section within this section or sentences, statements, I'm finding more information about what I've already talked about, so I'm going to bring that to you in the review. I'm, I'm, I just want to make sure that uh, you're getting all that you possibly can, or at least that I can give you, <laughs> out of this text, okay? So we'll do a little more review this morning. First Peter chapter 4, reading verses 12 through 19. Beloved, the Apostle Peter writes uh, to these Christians in various churches uh, who were suffering for their faith. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you, to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I, uh, we've only covered verse 12. That's all we've covered. And I, I like... Verse 12 in the New American Standard Bible, a little, a little more. I prefer it, just the way the phrasing is, so I'll, I'll put that up there for you just to remind you of it. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, comma, which comes upon you for your testing, comma, as though some strange thing were happening to you. So I titled this sermon, as you know, Comforts for the Afflicted, and and really, that's what I'm trying to draw out of the text, various comforts or consolations that the Apostle Peter is giving as a pastor to these hurting people, to the people of God, to encourage them, to strengthen them, to help them to persevere under the circumstances that they find themselves in, which are circumstances of suffering, specifically suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, drawing out these comforts, the first comfort we, we've 
uh, taken a look at is that the suffering of persecution, as Peter says here in verse 12, is it's not something alien or strange to the Christian life. It should be expected as a follower of Christ. So you're not doing something wrong, Christian, if you suffer in this life or when you suffer in this life for following the Lord. You're not doing anything wrong. In fact, you're, you're doing things right. Nor is God angry with you. He's not angry with you, which might have been something they could have thought coming out of paganism, as I've said before, where the gods, if you didn't exactly please the gods in the right way, then things would go not well for you in your life. And so that's not the case. This is not uh, bad karma. This is not them, you know, they're getting paid back for something they've done wrong. No, this should be expected for the follower of Jesus Christ living out that righteous life by the power of the Spirit of God in an unrighteous world among people who are hostile to that very Spirit, to the gospel, to Jesus Christ. In this present world, living righteously, living for Christ, beloved, will likely lead to suffering. Okay? So there's some comfort in that, knowing they're on the right track. They're on the right track. Stay the course. Second comfort, second comfort we looked at last week is that is, is kind of framed in the sense of God's good purpose behind these difficulties they're facing. God's good purpose. Uh, Peter calls it a fiery ordeal or trial, or as one translation puts it, trial by fire. Don't be surprised at this fiery ordeal among you, this fire by trial. Now, just to remind you, or in case you weren't here, this is metaphorical language that Peter's using, very similar to the language he used in 1 Peter, the same letter, Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where there again he talks about a fiery trial or the trials. And it's metaphorical in the sense that I believe it's referring to um, or picturing a process using intense heat. It was called, uh, it has been referred to as fire assaying. Fire assaying. Assaying just means to determine the content or quality of something. So it's using fire or intense heat to determine the content or quality of something. And this process was carried out to determine or prove the precious metal content of something, such as gold or silver of a particular material, such as ore, fire assaying. Fire was applied to the ore, and through a process, which is long and a little bit complicated, they were able to determine if there was precious metal or how much precious metal was even there in this other material, okay? So that's the picture I believe Peter is referring to that they would have been able to relate to because this process happened even in their own time. One article I found titled, The History of Fire Assaying, uh, says this, and it wasn't a Christian article, it was just an article on the process because it's still used to this day fire assaying, to determine the precious metal content of a particular material, such as gold, gold or silver, that being the precious metal. 
The article read, reads like this, fire, the fire assay method, which is still most widely viewed as the most accurate means of determining gold and silver content, has been altered very little over the centuries. So the same process has been at work uh, in ancient times and continues to this day. And then the writer says, he's not Christian, he says its origins can be traced back as, as far back as the Bible. And then he quotes Jeremiah 6, 27 through 30, and it was actually a, a good passage to quote, and so I want to show it to you, just to help you get the picture and the idea, adding a little more content to your understanding of this good purpose behind the difficulties, this fiery trial that has come upon them, that God's brought upon them for a good purpose, all right? So in Jeremiah 6, 27 through 30, here the Lord is speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, and he says to him, I have made you a tester of metals. One translation says, I have made you like a metal assayer. N-E-T, uh, translation. I have made you, Jeremiah, a tester of metals among my people that you may know and test their ways. So he was, he, Jeremiah was made an assayer of sorts. And in this case, it was to test the people's obedience to the Lord. Okay? to see if they were obedient. But it goes on, 28, they are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely. The fire, that's the picture. It's metaphorical language. The fire comes upon them. All of them act uh, the, okay, sorry, the bellows blow fiercely, the lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on, for the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver they are called, for the Lord has rejected them. All right, so that's a, it's, a, it's metaphorical language being used in reference to prophet Jeremiah, who is acting for God as a metal assayer determining if there is anything of value concerning, morally speaking, uh, in the people of God at this point. Uh, one writer says, commenting on that, he says, the last verses of the chapter here in Jeremiah focus on the nation's incorrigibility. They, they just won't change. They won't repent. They're just stuck in their rebellious ways. It goes on to say, so that no one may think God has not given the people every chance. He is willing to have them tested for any merit or worth that may be in them. Therefore, he informs Jeremiah that he is to act as a tester and assayer of the moral worth of Judah, the people of Judah. We talked about this morning, the nation of Israel. Jeremiah evaluates them as hardened rebels. They are entirely of inferior metal, bronze and iron, not silver and gold. That's the picture. And though the refining process is thoroughly carried out, fire is applied, there is no valuable residue to reward the laborers of the refiner. So the test is brought against them, but it just proves there's nothing there of any value. Okay? So that was the, the process fire is saying that was used. That's the same type of language that Peter is using here concerning the Christians who are suffering the fires of persecution, okay? That process just proves something. It proves, is there any valuable metal in this material, and how much, okay? 
or is there none? In this case, God uses the suffering of persecution to test followers of Christ in order to prove to them, because God already knows, in order to prove to them beyond doubt their precious metal content. He wants to prove it to them. He wants to prove it to them. And by precious metal content, I would mean their genuine saving, redeeming, life-giving, reconciling, justifying faith. Faith. And by validating their faith to them, their eternal hope is strengthened and fortified. So how does that process work? The fires of persecution, persecution specifically, not because... Uh, they're a particular ethnic race or because they live in a particular area, but because of their faith in Christ and their allegiance to him, specifically for that. So persecution comes against them in various forms for their faith, for their allegiance to the Lord, and they stand. They suffer, but they stand. And by stand, I mean they don't turn back. They don't abandon their Christian faith. They continue to follow the Lord, demonstrating the reality of the genuineness of that precious metal content of their real faith. I mean, unless something is tested, you really don't know. You really don't know. So God purposes this suffering to put them in that position where they will see that their faith is real. How do they know it's real? Because it perseveres. Genuine saving faith, according to the scriptures, perseveres. And I've told you this before, when Jesus talks about the different soils, there is one who says right away, I'll, I'll follow Jesus, but it's not genuine saving faith because the second some troubles come into their life for that profession, they run, they hightail it. They say, forget Jesus, this isn't worth it. But to the one who loves the Lord and has been regenerated and born again and is, the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside, they are held on to and strengthened to persevere even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances, demonstrating beyond doubt that they are his and he is theirs. And that means all the hopes that they have in the scriptures are theirs as well. And that strengthens them and encourages them. So God has a good purpose in it, Christian. Don't be, don't be shocked. Don't think it's a strange thing that these fiery trials are coming upon you. God has a purpose in it. Difficult? Yes. But it serves a very important purpose in the life of a believer. So James, same type of uh, idea there, James 1.12, talking about this persevering faith, the scripture says there in the NET, happy is the one who endures testing. Same exact Greek word that's used in verse 12 of 1 Peter. Happy is the one who endures testing. Happy is basically, happy is the one whose faith in Christ passes testing. They endure because when he has proven to be genuine, a genuine bona fide believer through that testing, because he perseveres, he will receive the crown of life that God promised to those who love him. So he's happy 
He knows now this is a genuine thing. And it helps eradicate the doubts that flood into our minds when this suffering comes. And yet, we see ourselves continuing to remain faithful even though it means we're going to suffer. So, one writer says, whenever that, that hope, that eschatological hope that Christians have, whenever that hope is a living reality in the life of the believer, okay, and there is nothing like the fiery trials of persecution and you going through them and enduring that can fortify that hope because it confirms the genuineness of your faith, whenever that eschatological hope is a living reality in the life of the believer, and again, there's nothing like suffering that brings you to that place as well because in the midst of the suffering, you realize, this is not my home, this is not my home, I long for Jesus, come Lord Jesus, come. That's what he's saying earlier, right? You know, I mean, if, you know, if everything's just kind of going well for you, you know, you're like, yeah, I mean, it'd be cool if he come. But if you're suffering, right? If you're taking a hit for being a follower of Christ, come, Lord Jesus, come. You're, you're focused. I'm spitting all over that communion stuff, so Thomas, just be careful when you remove that uh, thing. Wash your hands really good. You are focused on that eschatological hope. And then the writer says, listen, when that's a living reality in the life of the believer, so I'm focused on it, and I know it's mine because my faith has been proven genuine through the fiery trials, it inspires unswerving loyalty to the Lord and promotes a readiness to suffer for him now. It promotes it. And it, it, it inspires that loyalty to the Lord when, the, when hope is a living reality in life of the believer. Eschatological hope our future hope, our future glory. So it's like a circle. Listen, this is so fun. I, the scriptures are awesome. What a gift from God that he's given us the scriptures. It's like a circle. It's like it's, it's, I call it the Christian circle. Persecution comes to the Christian. The genuine Christian endures. That results in a proven, genuine faith. That results in a fortified hope. That results in unswerving loyalty and a readiness to suffer for him now. And that probably will result in more persecution to one degree or another as you continue to be more loyal to the Lord. And the circle goes back. Persecution, proven genuine faith, fortified hope, unswerving loyalty, and readiness to suffer for him. So, beloved, persecution doesn't silence or ruin the true church. It can't by God's design. God, look how he set this up, and this has been demonstrated throughout church history. Persecution never shuts the church down. It only strengthens it. God uses the suffering of persecution to make his church stronger louder, bolder, more serious, and even more focused on its mission. So Satan, in all of his attempts to try to shut the church down, God just undoes it. He undoes it. Because in that process, he demonstrates the genuineness of the Christian's faith to them. He knows who and who isn't. He demonstrates it to them beyond doubt 
which strengthens them and gives them the hope of glory in a way that couldn't before and causes them to just even put their head down more so and stay the course and make Christ known. And that's been, that's been the reality of church history. Suffering comes. So we don't, that's why I say, to the degree that it comes, even it comes in our country, okay, it won't undo the church. The church will, the church will be strengthened from it. The true church. There'll be lots of uh, uh, tears that fall away. False believers, make-believers, superficial believers. There'll be churches that are not real true churches who either compromise and go along with the world so they can avoid persecution or just bail out altogether. But the true church will actually get louder. That's, that's the best way I can say it. They'll become bolder. And that, beloved, is not because we're awesome. It's because God's awesome, and he strengthens us and enables us for those very things. So we have, we have nothing to fear. The other thing, it, the other takeaway would be that the Christian, the Christian does not suffer for Christ in vain. They do not suffer for Christ in vain. That God has a good purpose behind the difficulties of persecution means that Christians do not suffer persecution in vain. Our suffering as a Christian is not pointless. It's not worthless. It's not senseless. It's not useless. Rather, our good and sovereign God has purpose, as I've just pointed out, to make it quite useful. He uses it to prove and improve our faith. And our faith needs improving, beloved. And it needs proving. You ever had doubts? I mean, if you haven't, I just don't believe it. I don't. I don't believe it. I believe that you're, you have doubts, but God uses this to eradicate, melt away those very doubts as he brings us through and we find ourselves remaining faithful by his power, demonstrating the reality that we... We are not who we were. We are born again. We are regenerated. We are a new person. Consequently, proving and improving our faith, he inspires unswerving, unswerving loyalty to the Lord. So God has a, a good purpose in these things. So, take comfort, suffering Christian. Not a strange thing. You've done nothing wrong. And remember that God has good purpose in this. He will prove and improve your faith through your suffering. So we have nothing to fear. We can trust the Lord. He is sovereign over these things. And he works them out to accomplish his good purposes. Now, <laughs> that was review. Looking now at verse 13, we find more comfort for the afflicted believer. More comfort. This whole section is just filled with consolations. Uh, picking up in 12 again for context. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Again, I prefer, ESV's translation is fine, I just prefer a little bit the, the New American Standard Bible translation. It's another excellent translation of the Word of God. It's closer, in this case, to the original word order. Sometimes they move the words around to make the readability a little bit better. 
I actually like the original word order here. I think it has more of a punch and intended to. Uh, verse 13 in the New American Standard Bible reads like this, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, and then the this, this statements at the end just to have the impact, keep on rejoicing, keep on rejoicing. And, and I like how the New American Standard Bible translates it, keep on rejoicing. Uh, the ESV just says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Lost a little bit, the impact there, but that word rejoice is a present tense imperative, so it's the idea of keep on doing it, keep on rejoicing. Now, let's look at this a little bit. Let's break this down with the time we have left before we celebrate communion together. To the degree that, to the degree that, that's how the New American Standard Bible puts it, or the ESV, insofar as, insofar as you share the sufferings of Christ, to the extent that, the phrase indicates, beloved, that not all Christians suffer for their faith to the same extent. To the same extent. Some suffer more. Some suffer less, as we well know. Okay? But a, and it's all according to God's good purpose and plan and wisdom, to the, the extent of our suffering. But according to 1 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But the extent of that persecution, uh, how frequent, how severe, will vary. It'll vary. And as I've talked about before, the particular culture that the Christian uh, lives in will most certainly have an impact on the extent or the degree of their persecution, right? If you're a Christian uh, living in a particular country in the Middle East, countries, your persecution will be more intense, more severe likely, more frequent than a Christian living here in the United States. Yes or no? Okay? All right, exactly. Because the culture of that particular country is more hostile to Christianity, but this is why in part I'm spending uh, so much time here because I I am convinced that our culture here is changing or it has been changing. It's changed and changing. Uh, not for the good. It's, it's moving away from anything that's remotely related to a Christian culture. It's moving, it's not completely abandoned that, certainly not, but it's moving away from that more over here to an anti-Christian culture. Which means that this text will become even potentially more relevant to us as believers of Jesus Christ living in America. America, United States of America, North America. Um, people get upset about that, so I wanted to correct that. Okay, so, and as an example of that, just to, just to draw that out a little bit, just, you know, I know polls, you know, you can't put a lot of stock in polls, but in some research done, polling in 2001, uh, Americans opposed same-sex marriage by a margin of 57% to 35%. Opposed. 57 against 35 for 2001. How long ago was that? Not too long ago. 
Since then, based on polling in 2016, a majority of Americans support same-sex marriage, 55% compared with 37% who oppose it. In 16, 14 short years, the numbers reversed. Those who are against it, the number is greater. Do you understand? The number is greater who are for it. You can't tell me, you can't tell me we're a Christian nation if a majority of the nation supports an abomination. So, I read a lot. I read a lot. I take in a lot, because that's just who I am. And also I do it because I just, I'm a pastor, and I'm, I want to kind of be aware as much as I can. Just, I have to be protective of myself, too. Thomas and I have talked about this. You've taken so much junk, you're like, I can't think anymore. But I, I'm you know, constantly out there looking, hearing. So I see more and more of this kind of stuff. Here was an, here's an article online. It was talking about the harmful effects of Christianity. What? And this is not by itself. This is not like one art. There are multitude of articles. The internet only just spawns these things and this type of thinking. And so as an example, just to help you see, I'm not like, you know, uh, a crazy man just saying, oh, yeah, yeah, he's going to get worse. You know, he should just be more positive, you know, and everything's going to be wonderful. Look, at it is going to be whatever God wants it to be. And God could bring... Uh, uh, a revolution, that's not the word I'm looking for. Huh? Thank you. That would be better. A revival would be better. Because a revolution, a lot of blood is spilled. A revival, <laughs> a revival to our land. And I pray he does. I pray he does. I pray he sweeps this nation, bringing people unto the Lord and into the kingdom of God. I hope he does. I'm just saying, it doesn't appear that that's happening, at least right now. It appears we're going the opposite direction. It appears that judgment is coming upon this land, and why wouldn't it? We deserve it. Slaughtering babies and spilling out pornography, we deserve it as a nation and all the other things. So it's only God's grace that we're even st still here for his own purposes, though, right? So... In the article, it goes on, the number, it has a list over 40 harmful effects of Christianity. The number two, I just, I want you to hear it so you understand, vilification of homosexuality. That's a harmful effect of Christianity. According to the article, resulting in discrimination, parents disowning their children, murder, and suicide. So all of that's on us, Christians, because we have vilified homosexuality, so... Uh, we are causing murder and suicide to increase. You see that kind of terminology? That's on us? They go on, you know, people aren't making the most of this life because of their belief in the afterlife. That's another harmful effect. So again, it's that idea. It's, look what Christianity does. They make people not care about this world because they're so focused on the world to come. No, we care. We just don't, we're just not planting our stakes here. And we also know that we're looking for the world to come. Yeah, that's right. That's right, because this one's going bye-bye. So, yeah, we have a different attitude towards this world. Uh, how about this? Another harmful effect, the demonization. See this kind of wording they use of other religions. 
Christianity demonizing pagans. Well, every other religion outside of the true one, which is Christianity, is from the pits of hell. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It leads people to everlasting fire. Yes, we say that not because we're mean. We say that because we love. We tell people the truth. Repent of your false religion before it's too late and abandon yourself to Christ. Right? Grief and horror. Listen to this. Grief and horror, the words, another negative effect, caused by the belief that dead friends and family members are tortured as punishment for disbelief. Grief and horror. Beloved, if one does not believe, they will be separated from God and placed into an eternal fire. That's what the word of God says. That is horrific. But the way they frame it, like, oh, look at, look at the bad thing you're doing to society, putting all this grief and horror. Yeah, well, Jesus spoke about hell a lot. And he spoke about the dangers and warned and warned, and we do too. You know? Children traumatized by vivid stories of eternal burning and torture to ensure that they'll be too frightened to even question religion. That, that kind of speech nonsense is, is becoming prolific It's in our country. Okay, so there is bitterness and contempt growing in our nation for biblical Christianity. That's my point. The culture is changing. God could do a work you could bring revival. I don't, whatever it is, we stay the course. We preach the gospel. We live it out. I'm just saying things are changing. Back to the text. Peter is basically saying, listen, beloved, don't be surprised at these fiery trials. That, that's not the reaction you should have, but rather rejoice. Be glad. Have joy in your heart to the extent that you share in Christ's sufferings. <laughs> rejoice. All right, what does it mean to share first before we get to the rejoicing part? What, and there is comfort here, I'm gonna, I promise you. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it, I'll be there right there, I'm gonna get there in time. What does it mean to share Christ's sufferings or share the sufferings of Christ? Here's the, a really good explanation of that. What does it mean to share the sufferings of Christ? Here it is, Christ endured unmerited suffering, he didn't deserve it, as the object of the world's hatred. Us, as his representatives to the world, the readers, Peter's who were reading this, and Christians, us, were in reality experiencing the same hatred, the same hatred. Their enemies would persecute Christ if he were among them, for it is really he who is the object of their hatred. And therefore, in being persecuted themselves, they are partakers of Christ's suffering. That's what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ. So rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And then Peter says that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Okay, you, now I'm going to speak, uh, I'm going to slow down a little bit. Because this is where the comfort is. This is good. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. I've explained what sharing Christ's sufferings is, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That, 
The Greek word here, translated as that, in the English Standard Version we use, and also in the New King James, that Greek word could indicate purpose or result. It's a little tricky to figure that out. Purpose or result. So it could be translated, as other translations translate it, as a purpose clause. So it would, be, it would sound like this. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, so that, or in order that, you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That, to me, is a little confusing, and it's attempted to, the scholars attempt to explain, okay, so what does that mean? Rejoice now so that, for the purpose that when I, when I come into glory, I can rejoice in that glory. I don't think it's a purpose clause. I don't think it's that. It can be a purpose or a result. And I agree with one Bible commentary. That's why I like the way the ESV translates it. I agree with one Bible commentary that thinks it's best to understand Peter's words here, not only to be a result, but to be a contemplated result. Contemplated result. To contemplate, to have in view as an end. An anticipated result. An expected result. You with me? It's an expected result. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, expecting that you'll rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So one writer says this, suffering as a Christian, as a Christian, not because you're a jerk, but because you're living out the Christian life faithfully, lovingly speaking the truth, confirms to us the fact that we are indeed Christ. It confirms that. To share, therefore, in Christ's sufferings here is to be on the sure road to a share in his consequent glory hereafter. This is because union with Christ involves not only union with him in his death and resurrection, which we celebrate, but also union with him in the whole pattern of his life, which includes his suffering for righteousness. Another quote. In contrast to the usual response of sorrow and shock to suffering and persecution, the Christian is to rejoice because he is participating in Christ's sufferings, which affirms, beloved, that he is indeed Christ. Christian rejoicing then rests on the fact that as Christians share in Christ's suffering, they know that they will share in his glory with great joy. As one writer puts it, such an awareness of future joy enables him also now, the Christian, to rejoice at the present time. He knows that future joy is his because he's suffering in the present for Christ united with him in his death and resurrection and his sufferings and the glory to come. It is a comfort here to the afflicted. You could put it this way. As I share in the suffering of Christ now, I can rejoice because it confirms to me that I will share in his glory in the future. How do you overcome someone like that? You can't. The world cannot overcome someone like that. With that type of hope, with that type of certainty, 
with that type of joy, with that type of rejoicing, you bring it all against them, it only causes them to rejoice. This is a further confirmation as I share in his sufferings that I will share in his glory. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 8, 16 through 17. A long time ago we were there, but it's interesting. He puts this phrase right here at the end. He says, we love, the, we love 16 and, and 17, and, and then the end's like, what? He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Amen! And if children, then heirs. Amen! Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Yeah! Uh, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And John MacArthur, that passage says, proof of the believer's ultimate glory is that he suffers. Whether it comes as mockery, ridicule, or physical persecution because of his Lord. We're going to end there. We're going to end there. There's so, oh, so much good content here, but I want to, we want to celebrate the Lord's table together and, and rejoice in that. So, brother, you come on up and bless us.